This is Opinionated, a roundtable debate that fascinates with each new thought-provoking guest, the place to convey strong ideas and, at times, the casual controversy. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson as they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everybody. This is Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller. Joining me today are co-hosts Anna Bedakova and Danny Nelson. And we have a very special guest today, which is Gervis Grigg, recently joined crypto sleuthing firm Chainalysis after 23 years at the FBI. And uh, we're going to be talking to him about the intersection between crime and crypto, which is obviously a hot topic after a year of uh, ransomware and much criminality. So uh, we'll get right to it. And, and Anna's going to lead the show here. And take it away, Anna. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. We have a very, very interesting guest today. A lot of things happened this year that has been related to tracking down criminal money, ransomware money. The U.S. sanctioned, actually, first time probably in history, two crypto entities that has been related to laundering of ransomware money from hackers. And Chainalysis has been very active publishing their findings about these ransomware attacks and who could have been involved in cashing those monies out. Gervais, really excited to talk to you about this stuff, but I will start with a very traditional question. How did you first discover cryptocurrencies for yourself? And how did you first consider doing something with them related to your career? Thank you, Anna. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and Ben and Danny this morning and talk about this topic that, of course, is on lots of people's minds right now. Uh, how did I come to crypto? Well, obviously, uh, you know, crypto has a, a long and interesting history going all the way back from the launch of Bitcoin. And it didn't take very long before investors, speculators and criminals took an interest in this new form of money. So I began hearing about it years and years ago during my bureau career, and we began to see it popping up in cases and sort of monitored that as we went along. Then as I was approaching the time to retire, I knew I wanted to stay in technology. I've spent the vast majority of my career supporting national security and criminal cases and sort of that intersection of how technology can advance them. So I knew I wanted to stay in technology upon retiring, and not just any technology. I wanted to be in technology that's cutting edge, doing something different. And I thought, wow, the blockchain doesn't get much more cutting edge than that. And I also knew that I wanted to continue to support the public sector if possible. And I have a love of financial investigations. I was in the financial industry before joining the Bureau as a stock and bond broker. So when this opportunity to be the global public sector CTO for Chainalysis, it was sort of the perfect marriage of all three of those passions. What do you think that the biggest risk that crypto faces to the public is right now? Let me rephrase that just to make it sound a little cleaner in English. What do you think is the biggest danger that crypto introduces, perhaps as a tool for uh, criminals to use? that you've seen in uh, either at Chainalysis or at the FBI? Sure. The biggest danger, you know, I think it cuts both ways. The three reasons why crypto is so appealable to the average person is the speed, liquidity, and borderless. Those are the very same reasons, however, that criminals and illicit actors want to use it. It's instantaneous, it's borderless, and it's liquid. And those very features that make it appealable to lots of investors and persons around the world 
are the very things criminals and illicit actors also like about crypto. And so that borderless aspect where money can literally move out of someone's account and be on the other side of the world in an illicit exchange in just a matter of moments. And it's that speed and borderless that just makes this quite an interesting challenge for both law enforcement and government agencies. So from the outside, it seems that Chainalysis has been very actively helping the U.S. government agencies to find and pursue the actors who have been helping ransomware attackers to move and cash out their crypto. The U.S. recently sanctioned a Russian OTC firm, Suex, and a crypto wallet, Chatex, for helping the ransomware attackers partly. And also, I think the OTC founder named Dubinin has been recently arrested in Europe, and that also had to do with the hackers' money. So I wonder if you can explain a little bit what role Chainalysis is playing in that. Are you first to come to the law enforcement and show them, look, we found this, this might be something criminal, or is law enforcement coming to you and saying, hey, these are these wallets, we need to see where the money is going? If you can talk about that, how it works. Sure. We see both scenarios happening. You know, obviously, we're in, in over 60 countries and we have uh, customers in law enforcement and the financial sector around the world. So we have both of those kind of scenarios developed. First, where we, through our knowledge of the blockchain and our work, we may map and identify potential suspicious activity or, or things of interest. And we can bring that to the attention. Obviously, you referenced Anna early on. We spent a lot of time publishing information out on our blog and sharing that back with the community because we feel like through the sharing of that, we can raise awareness. But secondly, we do have our customers who use our products and they will then leverage our information and our products to help advance their investigation. So we see both kinds of that, where we will both identify proactively uh, information of interest and secondly, respond to requests and assist our customers and government clients with their investigations. So if we talk about this particular case related to ransomware, to the cryptocurrency that has been extorted from the American companies by hackers, and then they have been traced to certain crypto services, some of them have been sanctioned recently. If you can talk about the most challenging for you in that process, whatever you can disclose about those investigations and how Chainalysis managed to participate. Sure. So we've been following the issues related to SUEX for some time. And the detailed analysis that we put out, you can read down our blog and similar about ChatX. I think the important thing to take home there is both of these two actions recently are important key steps in addressing the threat of ransomware. You know, these criminals and individuals involved in this are doing it for one principal reason, and that's to make money. And until you go after and affect the bottom line of these actors, they're not de-incentivized to, to stop. And so these type of enforcement actions are critical to taking out and addressing these actors and de-incentivizing the financial return that they have on that. I'll give you four examples. So if you look at the ransomware threat, it's a diverse network. We really talk about it now as ransomware as a service. In the old days, you had to be an advanced uh, cyber expert to be able to conduct some of these kinds of attacks. But you don't have to anymore. You can literally go out to the dark web and rent the tools you need to conduct your ransomware attack. All you have to do is promise to pay them a portion of what you will ultimately extort. And so that presents a really new challenge, but a unique opportunity, which I'd love to get into you with it. And that is, how are they paying for those services? They're paying for them with cryptocurrency. When they go out and they want a bulletproof web hoster, how are they agreeing to compensate that bulletproof web hoster? 
with cryptocurrency. When they go to the administrator who's selling them the tools, they're going to pay them with cryptocurrency. When they get the cloud hosting service that will host their illicit data that they've stolen, how are they paying for that? With crypto. And then ultimately, these services that help them translate cryptocurrency back into cash and to cash out, those money launderers, those are at the end of the crypto rainbow. And so by mapping out all of these services that support ransomware, you can identify key nodes. And then with targeted action, you can disrupt those and affect not just that ransomware campaign, but potentially a host of others that were depending on those same services. So what would you tell people who would say that pursuing these crypto services that exchanged crypto for cash, you're kind of perceiving a wrong target while the hackers themselves, they might just go and use other services and they are at large still anyways. Well, these exchanges play a vital role in the health and wellness of this new financial ecosystem. You know, oftentimes people say, we well, you know crypto is really not regulated. And of course, FinCEN, as far back as 2013, put out guidance regarding the regulatory actions necessary for crypto. We are seeing, however, and as you say, this growing prevalence and desire to ensure that we have a good compliant system. And you can see that around the world. These, as you mentioned, you know your customer and know your transactions. These most recent indictments, I think as you kind of read what Treasury had to say in the others, you can see the, the preponderance of illicit activity that was crossing those entities' systems. But you are right. There is a critical need to know your customer, to know your transaction, and we're seeing compliance with that growing. I mean, compliance is, is good for business. People want to do business with entities that they trust and that will be trustworthy. So it is vital that these compliance regimes grow. We have seen instances where an exchange or an entity could unknowingly, right, facilitate the transaction between two parties. That's with millions or billions of transactions, that's bound to happen somewhere. What the authorities are concerned about and what I think these most recent actions show is when these entities completely fail in their duty and or turn a blind eye or facilitate knowingly those types of transactions. And there's a big difference between that and the random unknowing event that an exchange or a bank or a financial institution might facilitate. So typically, I think in the past, uh, you know, most of these ransomware transactions have been denominated in Bitcoin. I was just wondering if that's still the case and whether you know, there was this colonial pipeline leak ransomware situation where, where they caught up with the Bitcoin. Does that sort of change the mind of the criminal going forward? Are, are they seeking out new coins and, and new sort of methods to make this happen? And that's a good question. Well, criminals are enterprising individuals, right? They right. operate in a brutally competitive market, and they're always looking for some new advantage to stay ahead of their fellow criminals or ahead of the law. So I, I wouldn't put it past them to be thinking creatively about how to solve some of these problems. But I can tell you this, from the data we see, Bitcoin is still king. Uh, Bitcoin is the most uh, requested coin. And you ask why? Why aren't they using more of these privacy coins? Yes, we do see instances of individuals trying to use privacy coins like Monero or others, but the bulk and vast majority is still Bitcoin. And so people say, well, why is that? Well, for the very reasons that we said there at the beginning, because it's instantaneous, it's liquid, and it's borderless. You know, if you request your victim to pay you in an obscure coin, that's very, very hard for them to obtain, much less broker, you're never going to get paid. They want to get paid. And so they rely on the speed and borderless nature of crypto to get paid So they then can try to move it through a network of wallets and ultimately get it cashed out. And that's what we continue to see. Might that change in the future? You know, anything is possible in this world. 
but the data supports that most of these illicit actors are still trying to get paid in something they can exchange for cash. I remember one company shared, I think, their experience of talking to the ransomware actor about this, you know, decrypting their files and paying the ransom, and they were able to negotiate paying the ransom in Bitcoin instead of Monero because they said we can't get as much Monero in a short time. Absolutely. Well, Anna, to your point, you ask about these exchanges around the world. Many of them are beginning to delist these privacy coins because they see that as a high risk and they don't want to draw unnecessary attention from regulators that make it appear that they are somehow knowingly or unknowingly facilitating illicit activity. So that ecosystem is actually tightening and getting better as a result of these compliance type actions. Do you think that the latest FATF guidance on virtual assets is going to be doing enough to keep up with what you're seeing, how criminals are evolving in their usage of cryptocurrency? Yeah. So the latest FATF guidance is both welcomed and and helpful. And I think uh, time will tell whether that's going to be enough or whether it's going to require additional guidance in that. I think when you look at the growth of the crypto market and how fast you know the market capitalization is growing, and just look at what it was last year and the year before, you can't have trillions of dollars move into a new asset class and not create all of these uh, challenges, both advantages and challenges. Uh, I think we will continue to see the growth in compliance regimes around the world. I think we will continue to see greater maturity. There will be additional questions and challenges implementing some of that FATF guidance, which will probably necessitate additional guidance and clarifications. But I do think this recent FATF guidance is both welcomed and needed. So there, there is a kind of strong, obviously, uh, libertarian seam running through cryptocurrency. And there are certain people, prominent people in this industry who don't like actually chain analysis kind of role in sort of documenting the blockchains. And, and they even say, well, shouldn't we be able to move money across borders without, you know, government snoops uh, looking at us? Do you have any kind of sympathy for that kind of idea? I mean, it, surely there's a trade-off between the need for privacy and the right to kind of engage with whoever you want to engage with on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, you know, the need for law enforcement to really track down genuinely bad actors. So I spent my career uh, defending the Constitution of the United States and adherence to the rule of law. I think absolute transparency is not good, nor is absolute secrecy and anonymity, right? There has to be a balance there when it comes to the ideas of privacy. And the government, if the government has a desire to obtain certain records, there's lawful process that must be adhered to. You know, anytime I went as an agent to have to go and to seek permission from a judge to get access to a person's records, I had to swear that out. And and articulate a probable cause why I believe that there was the potential for criminal activity going on. It had to meet that legal standard. I think uh, it's important that those types of regulations and rules of law stay in place. With regard to the ability that, as you say, many people ought to be able to move money, I, I do believe, and many of us who work in this industry believe in the power of this new asset. When you look at what, four years ago, the World Bank released a study, I think it was in 2017, released a study saying that as much as 31% of the world's population was unbanked, meaning they don't have a relationship with a financial institution. And if you look in some parts of this world, uh, the infrastructure for financial transactions and the ability for people to save money against inflation or to transfer value between partners is really challenging. And I think crypto opens that up and democratizes the access to financial and financial systems. Uh, so I'm a big believer and proponent for that. However, I also know that criminals will take advantage of any good thing. And so with that freedom and that access, 
that crypto allows as an asset class, there must be balanced regulation and bring that into parity with best practice that we've already used for years in the traditional financial system. That's kind of how I view it and approach it. Anna was sharing this blog post you put out for Chainalysis, explaining why you joined after 23 years at the FBI, which is very interesting. And you did talk about this kind of new financial system that we're, we're coming into with the growth of Chinese crypto and, and, and Russian use of crypto and even North Korean use of crypto, uh, often illegal. Do you think fundamentally that it's a good thing for the world to have the United States running the global financial system? Because it seems from, from that post that you were suggesting that if the Chinese and, and, and the Russians and the North Koreans you know, get hold of the reins of this system, that's going to be a bad thing. I believe that this new asset class cannot be put in the hands of criminal and authoritative states. It needs to be open and free for the world to be able to use and, and freedom and democracy loving peoples and, and others around the world. I, I would be terribly concerned if authoritative states were to dominate and control this market and define its use and how it's being implemented, because I don't believe that would be consistent uh, with our values and, and the way people want to be able to freely exchange value. But wait a minute. So, so Chainalysis is working primarily for the US government rather than for the financial system or for crypto in general? I mean, isn't that a bit sort of patriotic or jingoistic? Yeah. So our company, like I said, is in over 60 different countries and we support customers around the world. We don't have uh, one allegiance to one company versus the other. We are a US-based company, but we support the openness of crypto and the ability to transparently transact these value exchanges. So it's not tied to one particular set of ideals or country. I can just tell you from my perspective where I adhere to, and that is I believe in democracy and in an open system of transfer of value. So you think that the Chinese are not sort of capable of delivering that type of system for us? I think what I have seen so far concerns me. Do you think that it's a good thing? How do you feel, I guess, when we see like China saying, all right, no more crypto, now no more crypto mining, now no more crypto anything. Is that good for the ecosystem to basically push cryptocurrency out of an entire block of the world? Or uh, is it bad? How do you feel about that kind of thing? Well, we've definitely seen a, a shift since they made that announcement earlier this year in May, right? However, at the same time, we saw an announcement of their intent to launch the digital yuan. So it's sort of um, contradictory in some ways, uh, and you have to wonder what's the ultimate intent there. It's interesting as we are talking about this role of the U.S., if you look into the history of the most notorious ransomware strains, a lot of it came from the US, like the initial code, the worst viruses that became the worst ransomware attacks in history were initially developed in the US and then either leaked or stolen or I don't know, like maybe sold. So what are like the most challenges of the future you see for yourself in Chainalysis as criminals become more entrepreneurial in their ways and you still need to track them? Well, I, I think, you know, we spent a lot of time in, in, during our discussion here on how our tools and our knowledge of the blockchain has facilitated and assisted our government clients, which we have, like I mentioned, are around the world. But we also, almost half of our business also supports the financial sector, the exchanges, financial institutions, and others who are building and brokering the crypto economy. So what do I see for the future? Well, as market capitalization grows, more and more financial institutions and others are going to move into the crypto space, and they're going to need this type of uh, service and capability to ensure 
that they both know their customer, know their transaction. So I foresee continued growth in that area in supporting financial institutions and assisting them with their due diligence and compliance exchanges. I also see foresee a growth in the blockchain technology adoption in general, right? The blockchain offers a significant opportunity for both creating transparency and publicly accessible and auditable uh, ledgers. So I think we're going to see a greater adoption of blockchain technology in general, in addition to its use that's become famous for digital currencies. And then I think it's always interesting what the next threat is and how criminal actors are using this technology to advance. And I think they're going to continue to surprise us, uh, just like industry is with the new things it's going to develop. And that's sort of what makes being in the technology business so exciting and interesting because there's always something new around the corner, right? It may look like and smell like a little bit like of something you've seen before, but it changes in a new way. And that's one of the things that fascinates me about working technology. Great. Well, uh, thanks very much, guys. Uh, that, was, that was a very good discussion. Thank you, Gervis. And good luck with your analysis and tracking down all those criminals out there and keeping us safe. Please keep us posted about all the exciting stuff you're doing. Will do, Anna. Thank you very much, Ben, Danny, as well. Thanks. So I was interested in some of the things you said, guys, about China and, and kind of threat of China with crypto and the new financial system that we're building. And I did sort of hear kind of tones of a U.S. official and kind of sticking up for the United States view of things. So I'm, I'm wondering if he's taking that into his new role as uh, this chain analysis person and whether he's not sort of speaking a lot for the United States against other countries. Well, first of all, let's admit we don't have a career FBI officer on our podcast every time. So <laughs> this was kind of cool. But I think actually, you know, talking about nation states, dominating crypto. You can debate if the US as a global policymaker would be better than China or anybody else. But I think like any nation state is kind of equally dangerous to the realm, to the industry of cryptocurrency and blockchain, just in the sense that every nation states want to impose their rules, their regulations, and, you know, if, if you will, their own system of social score, because people are unbanked for a reason. For, for crypto, it would be better if any government would just keep away from it. But obviously, that's not what's going to happen in, in the months and years to come. Obviously, I think his main point of reference is the U.S. policy. But as, as Anna said, you know, any government getting too in the weeds with crypto and trying to call the shots as they have in the old ways is probably going to be dangerous for crypto just because the nature of this thing that we have is such that we don't want some single entity calling the shots. And I guess the US has more clout when it comes to attempting to call the shots than other countries. So that's certainly something to think about. Yep. I mean, this is, this is a kind of a long-term uh, story with crypto, this uh, need for acceptance and adoption and sanctification by the, the powers that be. And on the other hand, not wanting anything to do with government and believing that uh, transactions should be as free as uh, free speech. So I, I just think that if, if you believe in freedom and financial freedom, then you have to accept that people will do things like ransomware and governments like North Korea will uh, kind of exploit this thing. And you either believe in the freedom or, or you don't. So, Well, is accepting that that might be true, does that necessitate that you not do anything about it? Well, I, I just don't think we should be too sort of sanctimonious about the role of the United States in the financial system as a universal, you know, ameliorative uh, force, because I don't think the evidence shows that it has been that force in a world. We still have a tremendous amount of uh, unbanked, 
the tremendous amount of uh, surveillance over the financial system produced in Washington and New York, and to sort of claim that China is this big bad actor and it's going to take over crypto and run it in a terrible way, I think it's a bit sort of a bit over the top, personally. It's scary. You know, one thing that Gerva said was scary that, you know, we, we're going to see more of this stuff happening and more ransomware attacks too, because it's a business. I thought that was a fascinating guest, Anna. Thank you very much for, for introducing us to him. Fascinating to get that kind of insight from somebody who's been on that law enforcement end of things where he must have seen all kinds of crazy shit. And now he's working in, in this new industry. So that's fascinating. And Anna, I sidebarred this to you, but we have to wonder, are we violating sanctions by having uh, Anna Bidakova run this podcast? Could be, actually. Yeah. I don't care. It's your liability, guys. Yeah, all your friends are sanctioned, Anna. We know <laughs> all your friends are sanctioned. You're coming not, for you next. Not my friends, for the record. And that's all we have time for today. My name is Ben Schiller. This has been Opinionated. Uh, Join me today has been uh, Anna Bedikova and Danny Nelson. And uh, we'll see you next time. Check us out on your favorite podcast platform and at coindesk.com. See you next time. Bye. See you all next week. Bye. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Bedikova, Danny Nelson, and guest Gervis Grigg. Today's show was produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme music is by Ellison. Have any questions or comments? Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>